Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reimagine Diversity and Equity, a podcast by the U.S. Institute of Peace. I'm here with Mariam Safi, a senior advisor in the Secretary of State's Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Thank you for having me. So when did this office first open and what are its goals? The Secretary's Office of Diversity and Inclusion is a pretty new office. It's a startup office that was launched just last year, um, summer of last year. So the focus of the office is on how to make our institution more just, more equitable, uh, really for all employees. Um, But the idea behind it is that if we can remove barriers for advancement for those that are really on the margins of power, um, that this will inherently make the institution more equitable for everyone. Could you tell us about a specific challenge that you've encountered to JDI embedment in your current work? So I think one of the first things my office did, you know, when the ambassador, the chief, our institution's first standalone chief diversity and inclusion officer, Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, one of her first, uh, you know, sort of problems she identified was the fact that we needed more granular data, disaggregated data. So the first thing she did was, one of the very first things was to launch a data working group. And so it's been really exciting for me to see the evolution just in the last year of, you know, our institution through this working group to start um, disaggregating data and create the first demographic baseline report for our institution in our institution's history that not only we collected this data, which in and of itself is, I think, revolutionary, but also released it to the workforce uh, so that everyone can see, you know, where people are, you know, where where are the pain points, you know. And I think it's really important that it's disaggregated by as many categories as we can. So race, gender, disability, so that we have an intersectional approach to looking at you know, where are their potential barriers? And then with that, doing analyses, barrier analyses on what are some of the reasons why there are, you know, issues of advancement, you know, when it comes to a life cycle of somebody's career. So um, for us, that's one of our challenges that's been, how do you increase transparency just so you can understand the problem? And then once you understand the problem better, you know, then how do you use this data to inform reforms, structural reforms? Um, so we're, we're getting there, but that I think is a really important first step. So as you're working on this report, could you tell us about some of the creative approaches you've had to take to solving these issues and doing something that really hasn't been done before effectively? The creative thing that I'm excited about that we've been able to do because we're a startup office and we're not as constrained is kind of digging into our history, looking at the history of the institution um, and finding in a a sense like hidden figures equivalents in diplomacy. So there, I found out in, um, you know, by reading a New York times piece in in 2020 um, about an ambassador, his name is Terrence Todman, who in 1957, as a student at the foreign service Institute, um, you know, from the Virgin islands, uh, African-American, um, said, you know, I can't eat in the cafeteria, you know, because of segregation laws in Virginia due to Jim Crow, he couldn't eat. And he said, how can I represent my country abroad when I can't even eat with my own colleagues when I'm treated like a second class citizen here at home? So he spoke up, you know, and he uh, and I had never known of his story. And many of my colleagues didn't know about his story. And so um, with that, I said, you know, this is the culture of courage that we need in the department because because of Todman speaking up in that moment, especially he had very little power in that moment, right? He didn't know that later because of his advocacy work and him being courageous in the moment that that would 
push the institution to desegregate dining facilities. Um, but that was something that I thought, how do we change the culture? And so one creative approach is through storytelling, through you know, sort of resurrecting the stories of our ancestors and diplomacy, in this case, Terrence Todman. Um, and, you know, he, it was a thread throughout his career. So as I started to learn more about him, I found out, you know, when he was ambassador to Denmark, he served for under nine presidential administrations over a 40 year period. And at one point he was asked to serve as ambassador to South Africa. And this was during apartheid. And he said, no, I won't do this. So, you know, he dissented and it very courageous because that's not an easy thing to do. And I thought, wow, if more people knew about the history of our colleagues, he had a long career, became the first African-American to reach the uh, level of career ambassador, first assistant secretary who's African-American, and also, you know, second highest number of ambassador appointments in, in our institution's history. So he was exceptional sort of as a, as a period, as an American you know, who happened to be black, but it was, so just all the, you know, adversities he faced and he was still able to reach this, this, you know, pinnacle of, of our, of our institutions, um, you know, sort of the highest heights of our institutions. That was a wonderful story. And thank you so much for sharing that. And so kind of building off of that, as you've been experiencing and hearing more stories, what are some challenges you've faced along the way, whether those be through direct opposition to some of the work that's been being put together or just unexpected circumstances arising? Some of the pushback we get sometimes is this idea that if we're recruiting, if we're bringing in more diversity, that that will somehow dilute the merit pool. Um, And so the way that we've been, you know, uh, trying to address this kind of very directly is to say that we're trying to basically remove barriers for everyone to come in, regardless of background. And the bigger the pool, right, the more diverse the pool actually of applicants that are able to come in because we have more equity, we have more transparency and processes, then we'll just have better a better pool. And so then when we're um, selecting candidates, we'll have the best candidate because we'll have a broad pool. And so the idea is that we're actually really, we might be you know, recruiting for diversity, but we're hiring for merit. And and so there really is no trade-off. It's actually the diversity piece is, is in a sense, you know, bringing in, unleashing the merit that we need um, and really focusing also on ensuring that we have the right skills for the position. So, you know, that it's not only these informal networks that are you know, placing people in positions, but, you know, what are the criteria for a job, what's needed, and then who has those skills and making sure that that there's a match there so that, again, our foreign policy will be better if we have the best people with the the skills that are needed for the jobs in those positions. Um, And so so that's sort of our, um, but that has been a challenge, this idea that, oh, no, you know, there's going to be a scarcity of jobs for people from groups that have historically been overrepresented, let's say, um, and our argument is, no, we're, we're basically making our institution just more effective and having the best talent at the table, um, you know, by making the processes more equitable. So how do you imagine that future efforts or processes could build upon this effort and solution to further embed JDEI values in diplomacy? Before, in the past, the work to advance diversity, equity, inclusion has largely been kind of side work. It's been things that are done, you know, it's a volunteer efforts by very passionate, committed. I mean, in our sectors, especially in the public sector, there's so much, people are public service minded. They're very generous. They're very, but we want to say what the secretary has said is that this is a national security imperative, right? This is, 
work to advance equity is and diversity is a national security imperative. So how do we translate that into our performance evaluation so that we're being measured against this metric of if it's an important value, if it's a strategic imperative, then how are we integrating? So one way to do this is to make DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility um, work part of the job metric for advancement. So it's a core precept, which is for in the foreign service, part of our employee evaluations, we're measured against these precepts, um, as well as also for civil service counterparts to have, um, you know, this DEIA is a metric for advancement. So this sends the message, this is a core part of our work, and it gets everyone involved. I think another issue is how do you make sure that this work isn't just on the shoulders of one person or one office. Right now we have the chief diversity and inclusion officer who's extraordinary. We have a team of very committed people. Um, but again, you know, it can't be on the, this entire enterprise. All of this, these big issues can't rest on the shoulders of one person or one team. So we're really working to decentralize the work so that everyone feels invested uh, and everyone knows, you know, how to play, you know, what role they can play. So we're doing our part by doing you know trainings toolkits webinars on you know some of these structural issues of of you know participating in a podcast like this to really be part of these broader conversations so we can learn from other institutions we can crowdsource we can pilot we can innovate sometimes we might fail but then we can learn from that and then you know sort of uh it's it's a work in progress so i think this is a long-term effort and um I don't think anyone had, there's no magic bullet answer to solving this overnight. And I think a lot of these interventions even we're doing are part of a holistic process that are that will also have to be sustained and uh, built upon by future generations. So I just like to ask, what advice do you have for other institutional leaders and JDI advocates who want to imagine solutions that push, push beyond the current status quo and beyond working within that status quo? So it's a great question. And, you know, I'm learning from so many leaders myself. So I, I come at this question with a lot of humility as well, because I, uh, I know I don't have all the answers. But one thing I found uh, across the board, whether it's in the State Department or in a previous life when I did advocacy work, is data. It's just critical. Like without it, uh, it has to be disaggregated and we have to know what the problem is. Otherwise, we can't really have, you know, it's not the only piece data informed you know decision making isn't the only piece there's much more to it but i think a starting point creating these baselines um so that we understand we can benchmark future progress that's so critical uh the other piece is you know in doing this work there needs to be accountability right so the data can be one piece of it by showing it and publicly showing it, you know, so that the world can see where are we? We've, we've sent it to our whole workforce, you know, so that it's not just a few people who know what's going on, but everyone knows because everyone can be empowered to also help in the problem solving and the innovation, right? So the more knowledge that's shared, the better off we all are. Um, but also accountability in, you know, how do we, if there's, you know, toxic behavior, having people speak up and in the moment and take action, right? Like Ambassador Todman, that story, he didn't know the outcome. You know, we, we celebrate him now, but who knows what could have happened, right? I mean, he was very vulnerable in that situation. And also, what, what about his colleagues, right? So there were, it wasn't just Ambassador Todman who knew about segregation in that moment. What about his colleagues who also probably wanted to eat with him too, you know, his white colleagues who were like, you know, oh, you know, it's like, well, then maybe more people need to speak up, be allies, et cetera. So I think being courageous, um, I know our institution, you know, like many institutions, 
there isn't a culture of speaking up, right? People sort of keep their heads down. They don't want to rock the boat. And what we're trying to do, you know, some of it is through the storytelling of looking at our history where we have this courage embedded in our history, but also, you know, the more it's a muscle, right? Courage is a muscle. So the more you exercise it, the more you normalize it, the more, you know, other people will do sort of, and creating this as, again, with the precept, it's part of a process, is an, an incentive structure to say, okay, when things aren't going well, report it. You know, this is part of DEIA work. Uh, when things are going well, reward it. <laughs> so write an award, you know, when, when things are happening well. So it's, it's really thinking about this as a lens in everything we do, uh, whether it's internally or whether it's externally. So you mentioned uh, the value of decentralizing some of these efforts and training others to continue the work as well. So I'd just like to ask, what approaches have you found to be the most effective in catalyzing meaningful, lasting action, both within your immediate uh, circle and also within other teams and bureaus and aspects of your work? That's a great question. And I think it's something that we're actively working towards. It's like decentralizing the, the work so that everyone feels invested. Um, I think trainings can be really helpful, you know, with a cautionary note that if you mandate a training, like mandatory bias training, that can have counterproductive results. But making sure that there's customized trainings, things like bystander intervention uh, training, where it it helps people understand, okay, what do I do in this moment of awkwardness where something bad is happening? So how do you, how do you do this, right? And how do you customize these trainings in ways that are also specific to the institution? So we have an entire, uh, you know, foreign service institute that focuses on training that's working on just that. Um, So I think that's one way to decentralize. Another way is to just have these sort of active conversations, town halls, where people are being candid. You know, we've been doing a series of these Um, called DEIA in Action. And it's really meant to have senior leaders, mid-career folks, people across um, different job categories have, um, you know, be at the table, being vulnerable, being honest and saying, you know, you know, I in the past haven't spoken up, but in this moment I did on XYZ issue. And um, here's what, you know, showing but leading by example and saying, you know, we're not None of us are perfect. None of us. And so um, even my ambassador has talked about how, you know, she, she we were talking about microaggressions. And she said, you know, I've as a black woman ambassador, I've committed a microaggression against someone. And you know, here's what I learned from it. And here's how I responded in the moment. And being grateful, actually, for the intervention that the person had the courage to talk to her about it. And by just showing the vulnerability of, of all of us that no one really has this right. Everybody can make mistakes. We're human. Um, but giving that grace as well to sort of say that it's it's okay. Um, and, and I think, again, a challenge in the decentralization is so that everyone feels invested. Some people might see this as, oh, this is only for certain underrepresented groups. This isn't my issue. I don't want to step on anyone's toes by being involved. In fact, no, we need everyone because everyone you know, is, we all have multiple identities. We're all coming at these issues um, in intersectional ways. And so it's important for all of us. Again, it, it can't only be certain underrepresented groups at the table. Um, we need the diversity of all thought. And that includes uh, those from, you know, groups that have historically maybe been more visible in, in these in these positions. Thank you to Mariam Safi and to all of you for listening to our podcast, Reimagine Diversity and Equity. If you've missed any episodes, we invite you to visit our website, usip.org.